Mind UFO Radio. I am your host Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with Senior Jason McClelland. And I wanted to mention that the show is sponsored by Audible, which is an Amazon company. We'll talk more about that later. But hello, Mr. McClelland. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Yep. So, um, did I hear that you started a mariachi band? Dude, you are so behind the times. It was like decades ago. We've been rocking oh, and rolling really? ever since. Yeah, nice. How's that no, going? I don't know where the, where you get your sources, my friend. Uh, I get mixed up. Yeah, no mariachi band here. Oh, okay. I got I mixed wish. up. That'd be amazing. You know what? If people want to see some cool mariachi, and this will segue into another good story. If they go to my YouTube, which, you know, if you just look up Alejandro Rojas, just my personal YouTube um, I recorded on my birthday, you know, we went to, we were in Vegas for the MUFON conference and there was a mariachi band and I recorded a bit of them singing Viva Las Vegas. And, yeah, uh, it's a great super thing. Cool video. do that. Yeah. I'm glad you got video of that. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people have looked at the video. It doesn't have many views and it's so fun and awesome. And if you want to see some Viva Las Vegas mariachi in Las Vegas, Check it out. And do people were partying. You were partying. You got Blitzkrieg that night. I don't know if I'd say that, but... No, but I, uh, yeah, I, I went, went uh, did an after-hours party with the mariachi band. <laughs> nice. And that's when it all started. Yep. That's why... Well, one of the reasons I thought you had a mariachi band is because you wear a sombrero to work. Yeah... But that's just because uh, the the ceiling leaks, and I got to uh-huh. keep the water off my head. The urban sombrero. Yep. Actually, none of that true. The whole sombrero thing isn't true either. But the the mariachi one is today. You can go to YouTube and and see I evidence see. of the mariachi thing. <laughs> but the good reason that's a segue is because speaking of Las Vegas, Viva Las Vegas, we will be Viva in Las Vegas this weekend because you and I and Maureen are speaking at the. National Atomic Testing Museum. That is correct. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, that'll be this Friday, January 24th. We're presenting a lecture at the National Atomic Testing Museum. They do a lot of lectures there in conjunction with their Area 51 exhibit. So the three of us will be there talking about UFOs and extraterrestrials. Awesome, huh? That's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. So if you're in the Vegas area, definitely check us out. Uh, come say hi. Come listen. It will definitely be worth your time. So, uh, and thanks to the museum, they're awesome. Love the museum. We go to tons of their talks out there. One, it's an excuse to go to Vegas. Two, they have our, usually some of our buddies speaking there, so it's a lot of fun. Yep, they do good stuff there. 
So our guest, let's talk about our guest for today. Uh, if you go to ufo-track.com, and you might have read about this because uh, we wrote a story about it at openminds.tv, um, there's a group of people that are putting together a, an app to track UFOs. So essentially they're, they're using some of the tools in our cell phones um, to detect UFOs and uh, create this network to hopefully... Um, spot those little buggers so people can get an automatic alert, real-time alert, and run outside and see it and get pictures of it and videotape it. And uh, very interesting project. They're looking to crowdsource it. They actually had a good amount of money that they had received from their first go-around at crowdsourcing on Indiegogo, but something happened and that got screwed up, so they're having to start up again, and they're doing it uh, this time on Fund Anything. Uh, so we'll talk about that. So if you did do the Indiegogo, I don't. Th- it doesn't look like everybody who who um, bought a sponsorship back then have done so again at their new one. So go to fundanything.com or ufo-track.com and do that. But yeah, we'll be talking to John Craig about that, who's been a MUFON investigator, and then we're also going to talk to uh, E.J. Thornton, his wife, who's helping him with it, and she's uh, actually authored a couple interesting books so uh really fun discussion so that is the show and then i did want to just talk about audible.com a little bit uh you can get a free trial of audible.com uh at audibletrial.com forward slash ufo radio and what this is is um essentially books you can go there and uh, pay like uh, get this free trial and then have access to a ton of books that you can download um, on your audio iTunes. Books. Yeah, audio books. And listen to, and uh, there's all kinds of UFO books and stuff like that. That, uh, And obviously a lot of you I know listen at work and like to have stuff to listen to. So, uh, yeah, you can listen to some UFO books. I mean, like Leslie Kane's book is up there. If you haven't read that, that's like a must-read. But there's a lot of cool books there, and uh, you can get the free trial and access to that at audibletrial.com forward slash UFO radio. Something I like to do occasionally, Alejandro, is uh, listen to my Audible books um, on my iPhone. And I'll have my, my phone by the bed at night as I'm falling asleep. And the cool thing about the Audible app is it has a sleep timer. So if I want to just like listen to a book as I'm falling asleep, I can put it on, set my sleep timer, and it'll automatically go off at a, a set amount of time. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I want a UFO, a radio. Calm down. Yeah, made me remind me of that song. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So, um, yep, uh, audibletrial.com forward slash UFO radio. So, um, speaking of UFOs, of course, at OpenMinds.tv, we always bring you the latest UFO news. And Jason and I like to review our favorite stories of the week. And um, Mr. McClellan, what would be your favorite story of uh, last week? Well, there were a couple stories that just kind of went crazy and were reported on by all the big media outlets, all the big news news sources. Um, and I'll just briefly, well, I'm not going to, I'll mention it, but I'm not going to discuss it. There's <laughs> a big story about uh, alleged Edward Snowden documents that prove that tall white aliens helped the Nazi party and now they're running the U.S. government. Maureen and I talk all about that uh, 
in the recent episode of Spacing Out. You can check that out on our website. But the other story that uh, has been covered and is, is making headlines still today, um, it was a UFO in Saudi Arabia, and several people captured this on video. It was seen by thousands of people. Um, basically a fireball shooting across the sky. And this happened uh, the night of Thursday, January 16th, in the Saudi Arabia city of Medina. Now, like I said, several videos captured this. And when you watch the videos, you can see an object shooting across the sky, and it kind of separates into at least two pieces initially, and then kind of separates even more. And, you know, people were thinking, wow, this is an interesting UFO. And some people started uh, suggesting that it could be a meteorite because that behavior is very similar to a meteorite. And I, I agreed with that. Um, but it also could have been space junk. And uh, today, according to the Voice of Russia, there are reports that uh, what it actually was was debris from a Chinese rocket. They launched a communication satellite in June of 2008, and they anticipated that it was going to re-enter re the atmosphere on the 16th. So as far as experts are, are saying, it wasn't uh, an alien spacecraft. It wasn't a meteorite. It was actually space debris, not space debris, but debris re-entering from this Chinese rocket. So you can go on the website and see some of these videos. They're interesting. We see a lot of fireball videos, and some are, are more mysterious than others. But right, right off the bat, when these came out, they, they seemed pretty, pretty obvious that they were some sort of debris re-entering the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I do want to mention, you know, we have a few stories of some pictures and videos, um, some of them kind of interesting. Um, but I do want to mention, just for people, because we got a lot of, I got some feedback on my Facebook and stuff with that, the tall white Snowden story, is that we do realize that that original story was based off of a person who is a known hoaxer and is always hoaxing stuff and, and putting out these uh, elaborate goofball stories that are not true. So we do realize that. Uh, the reason that we feel it's news is the same reason Washington Post and everybody else feels it's news, that it's interesting that Iranian news should pick up this story for some weird reason, and uh, and that's why everybody's writing about it. So... Just to clarify for people, because for some reason people have gotten a little upset. Why are you picking up this? this is it definitely a hoax? And it's like, we know that. But it, it, it's interesting, and it's news that uh, the Iranian news agency would talk about it. Right. And there are plenty of people out there who are firmly convinced that it's a legitimate story and there's truth behind it. So, you know, you have people on both sides. Yeah, I haven't heard so many from those other people Um I've heard more from the people who are like, well, that's obviously not true. We know, we know. We know people, so just so people know. Excellent. Excellent. So the story I want to talk about, like I said, we have a couple pictures and a couple videos, um, but uh, the one I want to talk about, because I think it's an important topic for people in this field, is uh, this one where uh, this UFO hunter... And he's kind of backtracked. He says uh, the other day, you know, they were out. He's a popular hunter in Australia. And we were shooting lasers at UFOs, and they were blinking back at us. And uh, a pilot uh, who was a former president of an aviation uh, club group, he came back and said, well, you know, that's a, a terrible idea <laughs> that, that uh, if, you know, when a plane is in flight, and you shoot a laser at it, you're probably not going to get the laser through to the cockpit. But if a plane is landing 
and uh, you shoot a laser and it, it blinds the pilot that that could be devastating and it could cause a terrible accident. And uh, the reason I think that is important be- is because it's a pretty fairly popular practice in some groups. And uh, I know some of the CE5, the the, the uh, CSETI people like to do that. And you know, when you're shooting at a laser at a light that is a quote-unquote unknown, there's a strong possibility that that is an airplane and it's probably just a terrible idea. Um, even if you're just a passenger of a plane and you decide to look outside and you get a laser shot in your eyes, that wouldn't be too fun. And these green lasers, these real powerful ones, uh, can can really blind people, and they have. In fact, there was an incident in Australia where a pilot said, you know, someone did shoot a laser at their plane, and it almost caused a problem on the same day that the UFO hunter did it. And then when they asked the UFO hunter about it, he said, oh, no, I don't even have a laser. We haven't done that in a long time, although he put on his website that they had. So um, I just think it's a good idea for people to practice caution, um, Airplanes can often look like UFOs, and I just, I personally don't think it's a very wise practice to be uh, shooting these things. I mean, the chance of causing an accident is, it's not worth it, you know. Um, So that's why I think that's kind of an interesting, cool story, because it's a topic that should be uh, visited, I think, in this field. Stop shooting lasers at UFOs, people. Yeah. Be courteous to the pilots. Yeah, I mean, they got those black eyes, it's a big black wrap around old people's sunglasses, it looks like, uh, probably because they're, they're light sensitive anyway. Yeah, those big eyes are light sensitive. Yeah. So, you hear about all the problems that causes with, with earthly pilots, think about the problems you're causing them. Yeah, and, and it could be, you know, it's just like when someone has their brights on, and you're like, ah, turn off your brights, and you turn your brights on to them. Yeah. And that's what could, the UFO could be doing. Yeah. I Turning mean, on his brights and saying, well, take this. Right. Yeah, you can't you can't see that. You can't see anything after that. It takes your eyes a while to to readjust. Think about it. it that might be causing some of the UFO crashes. <laughs> yeah, right. That may, that could be what's happened out there. So be responsible, people. Yeah. And I don't know. I I've I've seen this happen because uh, I've been out with people who have done this. But I I think it's kind of silly when when people say that shining a, a laser at a UFO and getting it to blink back means they're communicating or whatever. It can cause this to happen. Really, you think these advanced beings are going to see a light flash at them and they're going to go, oh, I see you, and like blink back? Like, What's the point of that? Give me a break. It's a really good point, especially when they could like drop a note or... Um or they could communicate telepathically or right. whatever else, right. you know, a lot of people allegedly do. Yeah. Blinking a light at you to let you know that they see you. I mean, they see lots of lights pointing their way. Give me a break. It's a very good point, my friend. I think it's very silly, but point. I don't know because I haven't uh, had personal interaction with them. So yeah. I could be wrong. But yeah. it seems to me to be silly, and it was, it's probably more annoying to them than uh, something they welcome. Well, and what scares me about it is I've been out with some of these groups who do this on a regular basis, and they're like, look, a UFO, and those UFOs, 90%, if not more of the time, turn out to be an airplane. Oh, absolutely, and the, the people who do this that, that I've been around, too, are really careless with it, and the planes are low altitude, and they're shining right at these planes. It's just irresponsible. Yep. So be careful, people. Be careful out there. 
All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, talk to John Craig, and uh, he's got some really interesting stories and stuff to talk about his own personal accounts and uh, some of his UFO investigations, uh, and E.J. Thornton about uh, UFO track. I am very happy to welcome to the show John Craig and E.J. Thornton, who are working on the UFO track project. Hello. Hi, how are you? Uh, this is John, and uh, yeah, we're really glad to be here. Thanks for having us on. No problem. My pleasure. It's kind of an exciting project where you're planning on tracking UFOs using a phone app. Right. We uh, came up with an idea where we can put an app in uh, smartphones that are um, available today that have accelerometer and compass chips so that when the phone is sitting still, which is like all night, and when sitting on a desk or while it's being charged, it can monitor the Earth's magnetic fields. And whenever there's a change more than a small percentage, it could be a UFO affecting the fields. So then we sound an alarm, and more importantly, we send a, a, a message back to the central server, which then can look on a, in a database for other track members that are in the area where that event happened and send them text messages to alert them to grab their cameras and get outside and look at the skies. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, I mean, if you have enough people doing this uh, all around the country, you'll be able to um, detect kind of the, what the magnetic fields are doing around the country. Right. The more people we have involved with this, the better it'll work. It's, mm-hmm. uh, that's what we're trying right now very hard to get um, as many app users signed up and track members signed up, especially the track members because they're the ones who will get the all-important text evidence. messages, right, the evidence. Mm-hmm. Cool. It sounds exciting, and I want to get into more details about around UFO track because I know you have memberships where people can look for sightings and track sightings and also use the app. But I want to get uh, into your background as well. So, John, I understand you have uh, in the past been a MUFON investigator. Is that correct? Right. I was in Colorado MUFON back in the early 90s, I think it was, to the mid-90s and got the field investigator training and uh, got involved with a few um, sighting investigations. Mostly, though, I did some amateur investigation way before that when I was in my college days. Um, Just all my life I've been interested in the subject, and I wasn't afraid to call somebody up and say to find out more about what they saw. Mm -hmm. And how did you originally get interested? Oh, that was back, I believe, in the... uh, early 60s, I was with my family in Syracuse, New York, and it was a, I think we were on a picnic, it was a blue sky, and I suddenly saw several little silver, maybe one red dot way high in the blue sky, and they were flitting around each other, like birds flying around each other, but they definitely were not birds, and I called attention to other people to take a look, and um, my dad called the Air Force and all that, and from then on, I was hooked, if there was something going on. Mm-hmm. And EJ had a had a case too. You want to talk about that one real quick? Well, I was up in uh, Idaho, and it was a very dark night. We were out in the country, and something very big and very black flew over us. And you know, except for looking straight up at it, you wouldn't have noticed it. It was uh, it looked like the bottom of the space shuttle going over low and slow. Mm. And I thought I could almost see ridges because it was was so low. And I thought, oh well, that's cool. And it, I thought it looked man made at that time. But the more I think about it, you know, that low, that slow, and no noise. <laughs> Doesn't quite fit. And no light. Uh, so it was very bizarre. Um, 
interesting thing. Mm-hmm. So at first, EJ, you kind of you watched it and you thought that's interesting, but it didn't like strike you as something really unusual or. Well, it was interesting because the shuttle was supposed to be landing that day, so we all had kind of shuttle uh, online, and uh, <clears throat> and there were several people uh, that that saw it, and uh, but it was just going low, slow, and dark overhead, and it was either very close or very massive. It could have been either one because it was so dark; it was difficult to tell distance. But I really thought I could see like ridges and stuff like that, so I thought, oh, that just looks like something, uh, you know, a plastic mold or, or, or something like that. So I, I thought, oh, that just, it's obviously strange, but I was pretty sure at that moment it was man-made or that was my first impression. Mm-hmm. But the more I talked to John about some of these sightings and things that other people have had, I'm like, maybe the, the no noise is what really gets me. Um, yeah. Because we've, we've had, uh, the last several days we've had uh, helicopters and planes almost buzz our house. We live pretty close to an airport, but... Uh, they're low and they're so loud, um, so it's uh, the floating over silently that uh, finally convinced me that maybe that was a little more special than I thought at the time. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah, so kind of cool. Now, John, now, now your sighting kind of inspired you to go on and, and get into UFOs, but EJ, you kind of, this hasn't been your main priority. It wasn't until you met John that you started getting into the topic. Yeah, I'm UFO. I'm ufologist by marriage. <laughs> <laughs> my, my and I don't think I mentioned wife, that before that you you all are married. Yeah. Yeah, my previous wife and I did have a few experiences. A uh, really really bizarre one back in, I think it was 1974, and then uh, but she passed away in 2005, and I knew EJ. She was the boss's daughter, so we're happily <laughs> happily uh, teamed up now in a lot of different ways, business ways and and uh, UFO investigation wise. Mm-hmm. So what then, uh, when did you start to actually get involved with investigations, John, and what inspired you to do that? Um, probably the first time was very amateur, but I, I think I handled it pretty well, was in college. My roommate said, well, did you hear about the UFO that landed last night? And I said, no. So this was in Lincoln, Nebraska. I got the newspaper out, gave the guy a call, and went up and visited with him to find out what he had seen. <clears throat> it was kind of bizarre. There was a person on front porch in a suit that was trying to get in and talk to him when I pulled up and he didn't want to talk to this guy he said no go away you're a foreigner basically so I came in and he did let me in to talk and he said that other guy was had a foreign accent and I don't trust anybody <laughs> he described a um, UFO in the middle of Nebraska yeah in, in Nebraska and this guy uh, had a t-shirt with cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve you know just kind of uh, that not not to yeah, yeah, a real home person, but he had never believed in UFOs, but he was completely convinced a thing came down through the trees at an intersection, and his car either stopped or he stopped it in amazement, and he could see two oriental-looking people staring at him through the window for a while. Then it zoomed off, so he was a com- complete, uh, completely convinced that there's something really weird going on. No no uh, helicopter, no wings, no noise, just uh, two guys staring at him through his window from up in the sky. Wow, and, that's really strange. Yeah, and, the, and then the strange thing there was, as I was interviewing him, that his phone rang in his house, and he went and answered and said, hey, it's for you, talking to me. So I got on the phone, so who would who would even know where I'm at? And it was the guy from um, with the English accent 
And I met him later. I said, okay, I'll meet you. And I met him at a restaurant. And he worked for a uh, fire alarm company in Lincoln. And we had a, yeah, he, so he said we had a nice chat. A couple weeks later, I thought, well, I'm going to talk to that guy again. I tried to call him up at the um, company he worked for. And he said, well, we're trying to find that guy. He's just completely disappeared. So strange things like that have happened all through my life. Yeah, that's pretty weird. Now, um, did you go to talk to him for, like, the college newspaper or something? or No, just for my own my own sake. Mm-hmm. I just, um, I, uh, well, my brother and I had seen a UFO about a year later when I was in high school, senior in high school. And uh, so I was extremely interested in the subject at that point in time, just trying to track down anything I could to get to what I knew the truth was. But, you know, you got to got to get all the evidence to prove it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So did you find this guy pretty credible then and, and his account? I did, just because he was very naive. He didn't, he interpreted the two guys as from China or something. He didn't know what they were, but he was not making up something. He was he was scared. He thought they were foreigners going to invade our country. I don't know what he was thinking, but <laughs> he didn't want to talk to any foreigners, and he uh, he was very convinced he saw something. Did you ever look into or find out who the, the foreigner in the suit was that had approached him? Yeah, I had his name written down for a long time, and that's the that's the guy that I did go and meet at the restaurant. And um, uh, then when I tried to track him down later, he was gone. Nobody knows where he's at. And do you know who he was or why he was there? Uh, he did, yeah. Well, what was his story? Yeah. yeah, I did ask him while we were at the restaurant, and he said, well, I got interested in UFOs when I sat next to... Um, I think it was J. Allen Hynek on an airplane ride, and hmm. told him, well, I'll, I'll collect any information I can and report back to you. So he was an amateur investigator also, it sounded like. Yeah, that's very interesting. And just for the listeners who don't know, J. Allen Hynek was uh, the uh, scientist, essentially astronomer, who consulted with the U.S. Air Force in Project Blue Book. Um, right, this would have been just a couple years after the Blue Book closed in 69, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's very interesting. So uh, between that time at, and you becoming involved with uh, MUFON, um, was there something in particular that then inspired you also then to approach MUFON in specifically? Well, I did have one other sighting I should just go over. Cause it, yeah, uh, okay, he, great. He conducted a grand experiment. Yeah, and oh, at, cool. At, at the time, the, the phrase CE5, which um, means actually calling them in, you know, if you do something and they, they, you can get them to come and visit you, with you, that's Close Encounter 5. I think uh, Dr. Stephen Greer came up with that terminology. And I did that without realizing that's what I was doing. I did a very strange experiment. I was living at the edge of Lincoln in, in a mobile home kind of in the country. And I, um, I put together a message. This is the kind of thing I just didn't ever tell anybody about for years because it was strange. They think mm-hmm. it was very weird. But I created a message, split it into two parts, did it a form of encryption. Um, then I sent it out in two different ways, over a pager and over a noisy computer. I'm going to explain all that in a book I'm working on right now. But um, basically, I sent out a message where nobody would be able to put the two parts together and get it back unless they were extremely observant and extremely smart. And, you know, maybe if there's... Monitoring them. Um communications in the area. Yeah, anything monitoring all the electromagnetic radiations in the area could put that together and say, wait a minute, there's a message here. The message I put out was, UFO, meet me at top of a hill, 9 o'clock tonight. 
And then I sent that out, and then I dropped it and forgot about it. But I did go out that evening. Because UFOs had been reported in the area. Right, nightly for about a week. Every night, every day I'd listen to the radio, and, oh, another UFO was seen. So I went out with, with my brother, and we did not see a thing. But I got home about 10, 10.30, and my wife, Jeannie, at that time was freaking out. We had an infant daughter, and uh, all kinds of things that happened, dogs barking, cows mooing. Uh, she was completely scared. And I said, okay, well, here I am out looking for UFOs and left her home. <laughs> no wonder she's scared. But the next morning when I listened to the radio, there was a person who called in, or they were interviewing on the radio, about a UFO that her whole family had seen. I got her name, gave her a call, found out more information, and she lived out in the country right where we live, just, just over a little rise where the road came across. She said, yeah, we saw a big mass of blinking red lights up on the road, and we went outside in the yard to watch it for several minutes, and then all of a sudden the whole mass of blinking red lights zoomed up into the sky and took off, and it was right in the direction of our house. So apparently, while I was out um, trying to find UFOs west of town, this big mass of red lights came down on our house right where I had sent that message out earlier in the day, and, and uh, right at 9 o'clock, right? 9 o'clock, yes, roughly 9 o'clock exactly. So I was a believer. I just completely freaked out. I had never tried that experiment again. I, I'm going to put in the book exactly what I did, so if people want to duplicate the effort, welcome to. And for the record, he didn't tell his wife for several years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I, w- I was just completely um, flabbergasted, I guess. I don't know. It was really weird that I didn't want to carry through more with that, but I figured I would save that for something later in, in my life when I really wanted to try it again. Uh-huh. Wow, so that's really interesting. So that got you into um, the idea that possibly we could send messages then. Right. I, I didn't call it a CE5 at that time, but in recent years I thought, wow, that's what I really did, and mm-hmm. that's useful information. We should uh, make a conscious effort perhaps to try doing something similar sometime. Mm-hmm. And so then eventually uh, you approached or you, you came to MUFON. Right. Got into, uh, well, moved to Denver after a while, jobs and stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, decided to go ahead and check out MUFON. I did. And um, that was that was a great experience. I, I like MUFON a lot. I had another experience that, though, has made it hard for me to go back to meetings. And that's mm. okay. I'm still passionate about the subject. But... Um, I guess I should cover that, too. Back in 68 in high school, my brother and I saw what looked like a slow meteor going across the sky or a real fast afterburner on a jet. But it was something moving across the sky, a ball of fire at the upper edge of the atmosphere is the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly made a 180-degree, very smooth parabolic in a fraction of a second turn and started 180 degrees going back where it came from. And I knew, you know, instantly there's no way... um, conventional aircraft or meteor or anything else could do something like that. And we zoomed on home. We were in North Oak, Nebraska. We had about a half an hour drive to get home, and we had just gotten out of a uh, nighttime movie, so it was probably about 11 o'clock at night. We got home, and my dad, I woke him up said, Dad, Dad, I saw a UFO, and he says, What are you doing home so late? And it was like 2 in the morning. And at that time in my life, I didn't think anything of that. I was just exhausted but excited and he just wanted to talk about how late it was, and I wanted to talk about the UFO. But in, when I got into MUFON many years later here in Denver, um, 
I met a person who was a hypnotherapist at the MUFON meetings. So we did have a regression. It's the only one I've ever done. And at her office, and I did come up with a story. I still to this day do not know if I imagined what I, what came forward or if it was real. I suspect it was real. But the frustrating thing was I got home with a cassette tape of the event, of the uh, regression session, and there was just nothing but white noise on it. And then about two weeks later, the um, hypnotherapist passed away in an airplane crash in Wyoming. No, oh, wow. And I did not get paranoid whatsoever, but I did have such an empty feeling. Like, she and I were the only ones at the session, and I was just left with such an empty feeling that every time I've tried to go back to move on meetings, I just, um, there's something blocking me. I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. So I tried a couple times, once in Nebraska, once in Colorado. But I still am very interested in the subject, so I figure there's other ways I can try to help out. Mm-hmm. And... I guess just for, uh, I always kind of like to ask, because people who become MUFON investigators, um, kind of how you felt about the experience or what you were able to learn, if you found it helpful to actually get out there into the field and and talk to people. Oh, I think it's great. Um, I remember being amazed at all the different subject areas the person should really know. Um, F-stop on cameras, uh, just, you know, how photography works, uh, the way electromagnetic radiation, the whole spectrum, all the different parts of it, light and radio and all of those things, how they work. Um, I'm kind of a science background anyway, so I found that fascinating. But it's very important to know a lot of things. Um, well, like uh, one of the things that always has amazed me is you get you ask people how, um, how big a cross was the object you saw up in the sky. What what could you hold at arm's length to just cover it, you know, the same size at arm's length? And people are continuously... Um, overestimating? Oh, way overestimating. So what would cover the full moon? A lot of people will say maybe a golf ball, maybe a marble, maybe a penny. But um, those are way, way, way too big. It's actually an aspirin tablet. Standard aspirin tablet is twice the diameter of the moon at arm's length, which just threw me off. And so those kind of things are fascinating and it's good to know those things and to be able to ask the right questions and to be um, from the right point of view and the right critical thinking and uh, rational, non-biased and non-influencing point of view. They teach you a lot about how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I guess you, you already knew this phenomenon. There was, there was something to it before you went to MUFON. But do you, did you learn something new, I mean, about the nature of the phenomenon? Did you feel when you did uh, field work? Um, yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm always amazed at the percentage of the population that has seen something, or mm-hmm. believes at least, or knows somebody that has seen something. That. Uh, we just stopped in and talked in a store to a guy yesterday about UFO track. And um, he said, well, yeah, I've seen one. And he saw six pill-shaped objects over Denver a few years ago. And it sounded like a really good sighting. But it's amazing how many people, what percentage of people actually do believe. I think I kind of personally feel we've been programmed maybe on purpose, maybe not. But we're all programmed in general as a... Conditioned, maybe. Conditioned as a culture not to talk about the subject, uh, the giggle factor. And my strongest desire is to get people past the giggle factor. Right. Right. And as during the period that you've been involved with this, which has been quite a while, a few decades, 
do you feel there's been a change in that arena and how the public uh, perceives the phenomenon? Um, I think we've made improvement. There's I think with the advent of the Internet and just seeing how many people um, do have experiences and more and more are trying to get the evidence and stuff out there, it's just it's starting to engage more people in the conversation and they're figuring that it's safer to talk about. And so the more that that happens, the more it comes out. So when you can eliminate the ridicule factor, you can just see that how many people really, really are interested in the subject. So I think that there has been a shift over the few years I've even noticed it. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and EJ, I want to ask you too, because, uh, you know, having now gotten involved with this project and everything, you've probably ran across lately kind of that that thing that people run across when they start to get involved with this is how do I tell this or how do I hide this or when it comes um, out, how do I explain to people, you know, my interests or what I'm doing, especially in like uh, professional arenas. Um, how have you dealt with that if you've had to deal with that? Well, um, that's an interesting question. If I give you just a little backstory. E.J. Thornton is, I'm married to John, his last name is Craig, but E.J. Thornton is my pen name. I wrote a book called Angel on Board about my paranormal experiences with angels. And I found out, talking about angels, that if you even broach the subject with somebody and when you have a book in front of you about it, uh, they realize that it's safe to talk to you about this subject and that you're not going to laugh at them um, when you talk about something a little bit fringe. Um, so basically what I do uh, when somebody says something about it, I just say, is it safe to talk to you about this? And I just I just hit the, the nail on the head right away. And um, if, it's, if it's not, we don't talk about it. And if it is, usually we have a great conversation. So I just right out the bat just say, is it safe to talk to you about this? Mm-hmm. And um, I know that's a little bit bold, <laughs> but... Um, I kind of got used to that with the uh, the angel book thing. Um, well, that's really cool, though. I think that's something that you know a lot of people can learn is um, to be bold. Uh, and you know, you had that experience in the other arena, but it applies here also to be bold enough to get out there and say, "Hey, check this out." And uh, I would imagine because other people who I've heard uh, take that bold approach um, are. T- successful with it. Um, they don't really face a lot of ridicule. After you, after you approach people a couple, three times, you realize, oh, well, most people are interested in this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people don't laugh at the UFO subject. Even if they're only passively interested, they, they at least have respect. That That's what I found. I found very few people that just, uh, you feel uncomfortable talking to them after you broach the subject. Mm-hmm. And, and you give them an out that if it's not safe for them, that they can leave and you don't talk about it again. You, you've set that boundary with that person, and then you can still talk about other things and, and everything's okay. But you give them a chance to set a boundary, no, don't cross it, or, yeah, let's talk. So um, I realize I have to set that boundary with this subject, uh, with somebody new, but uh, once you do, you know where you stand, and it's cool. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about our UFO track project is, we kind of are taking the human element, the human uncertainty out of it. It's 100% automatic. Uh, the, cell phone, the smartphone will detect the magnetic field and give you an alarm and report back, and the text messages will go out. All of that is automatic, no hands-on, no people involved. We're not depending on people to 
get on their smartphone and call other people or to re- file a report, anything. It's, or even evaluate whether it's real or not. Right. It's it's completely completely open and uh, rational and, and uh, machine-generated. And if uh, people then do, do go outside and see a UFO, it, it opens the door to uh, really strongly evidence-based sightings. I think that's a key element of this. It's a proactive approach to not only... Uh, well, UFO sightings in the past have always been investigated after, in the, the after the fact, in the past tense. It, it happened, here's what happened. Now we're going to be able to um, detect them and track them and even predict where they're going to be in some cases. Mm-hmm. Which I think I agree with you is important. And it's, and it's interesting that you say taking out the human factor and uh, more logical and rational uh, because your background is in... Uh, programming, using numbers, and, and things like that. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, I've written several. Both of us. Yeah, we've um, okay. I've written several books for Microsoft Press on programming, and uh, it's a real technical science background. Uh-huh. Uh huh. One one of the things that I really uh, wish we would have had this going for the Phoenix Lights. Um, yeah. I believe down in that area, but um, imagine if there had been a, a let's say a hundred track members and app users in the Phoenix area mm-hmm. at uh, 8.30, I think it was, when the big object that flew low and slow came over, and even the governor saw it. If uh, people had been notified and gone out with their cameras, we would have gotten a lot better evidence. As it turned out, when the U.S. Air Force dropped flares at 10, after 10 o'clock, which they finally admitted to, um, that's the photographs and the videos that you see on the news and you know, and reports about the Phoenix Lights. Hardly anybody. I don't know that anybody got any good video or camera evidence of the uh, original thing that flew over. So, if um, but if we had had that, many we, people would have gone out camera in hand. We would have had multiple witnesses with multiple uh, photographs from different vantage points. We could have triangulated that for distance and size. And I mean, that's the kind of sighting that we want, where it's going to be just so beyond being able to question the evidence and uh, backed up by computer backed up by automatically uh, uh, automatically collected hard evidence from the smartphones you know mm-hmm. that um, to tie in with the visual sightings right and I, I, I want to get more into the details of the UFO track but I have one more question um, you talk about how you used uh, math and physics and astronomy to also, you know, be very critical, take a critical look at some of the UFO investigations, including your own. And I was wondering if you could give us an example, because you've said you've, you've debunked your own sightings before, um, just in, in the procedure on how you go about that and how that has helped you um, discover something as much more mundane than you thought it was at first. Okay, yeah, I had a very interesting sighting. In the late 90s, I was out for a walk after just after sunset. I saw I saw something totally weird. I thought, sure, that's got to be a really weird UFO kind of a thing. There was going across the night sky just above the horizon was a big. It looked like a comet with the tail and everything. There was the tail hooked up, so it wasn't a straight tail, but it was like um, a couple couple degrees, you know, like four or five times the diameter of the moon in the sky, this long tail from a spot. And it was moving across the sky fairly fast. It was not a comet. Comets don't move that fast, and it was not a contrail. It was it was totally strange because this hooked cloud of wispy uh, white cloud behind this thing is just going with it all in one piece. You know, and what in the world could that be? 
so I, uh, I mentally and everything logged down all the data I could, exact time, exact which part of the sky looked for the stars around there and all that stuff. Got home right away, got on my computer. The, sh- the space uh, shuttle was supposed to have landed that morning, but I found out it had not. It had been delayed a couple days. And so I said, well, maybe it's a space shuttle. I don't know. So I started checking into that, did some research, and under the right conditions, a waste water dump from the shuttle can be visible from the ground, especially if the sun is over the horizon in the direction of the uh, the waste water dump. And sure enough, this is in the northwest part of the sky in the summer where the sun was just below the horizon over there. So as a clincher, I got out the software that allows you to... to uh, predict exactly exactly where you could see the shuttle and at what time from any given location on the Earth. And it worked. Uh, it was there. That's the shuttle. It was right there at that point in time. So doing all that research made me feel really good. I, I pinned down an answer to something very strange. And other people apparently had reported it to MUFON. So I sent in my, um, my result on that. Um, it made me feel good. You know, if you can identify... If you can identify a sighting, that's okay, because it means that when you can't identify something and you've tried your best, that gives it more credibility as something that can't be explained, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense, and it's funny that you say that, because uh, I feel the same way, and I always have as an investigator, you get like this little rush, and I don't know if anybody, if people always um, um, understand that it's when you find something is really not a ufo and it is something uh known and you identify it it gives you a little rush it's exciting it makes you feel really good a lot of people when you debunk something get upset about it but um um, the important thing is then you can take that out of your catalog of of what is real and so um it's not you're, you're getting static out of the data right Exactly. And what's left is better data, better da- uh, better quality sightings. So. so you created a program to help you determine where Jupiter was or Venus was at any given sighting. So it's just a tool in his arsenal. Cool. For, um, if you put in your longitude, latitude, and time of day, he'll tell you um, where the moon is, where Venus is, where Jupiter is, where Mars is. So uh, instantly just, you can tell, oh, that's, you know, cause so many... Uh, UFO sightings get dismissed as either Jupiter or Venus, so you have that hard copy evidence of where those planets are, so that helps you either debunk or um, at least gather that much data on a new sighting every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I created this as a, as a tool just for UFO investigations. It doesn't have all the extra stuff that you don't really need to know, but it will tell you if the moon was up and what the phase was and if Venus was visible at, at a certain time and a half an hour before and a half an hour after. <coughs> Excuse me. So if, if anybody wants to go take a look at that, and you're welcome to use it all you want, it's at ufosciences.com, and it's called Sky Data, cool. S-K-Y-Data. If you go to ufosciences.com, you'll see the link to it. ufosciences.com. Right. Mm-hmm. Make sure I write that down. Go check that out. And uh, so UFO track. So how did the idea come about um, that, hey, we might be able to use the um, features already on these cell phones to track UFOs. Oh, that was fun. I, I, I had created, in the last couple of years here, I created an invention called Lucid Break that uses an accelerometer chip exactly like it in the smartphones to um, let you create a, a, a brake light for bicycles that just senses the inertial changes. Oh, cool. You don't, have to wire, you don't have to wire it up to your bicycle at all. 
and so I'm very familiar with the electronics involved. And, um, of course, I'm interested in, in UFOs. And all of a sudden, one day, I just had a flash of inspiration. I said, wait a minute. Why don't we also read the uh, compass chip and re read the accelerometer to make sure the phone is at rest because the uh, that wouldn't work good for the compass chip if the phone is being moved around. And it all just fell into place. So I uh, teamed up with a, a really good friend of mine, Mike Flanagan, who's a really sharp programmer also. And we uh, worked on it. And EJ is great on social media and a lot of other aspects. So we just formed a team and started working on it. And it looks like it's it just started to look like it was going to work. We have the app way past proof of concept. Now we still have to put some finishing touches on it. And um, on the web. Starting to uh, gather some beta testers too. So whenever people are ready, you just need to let us know on that one too. But what we really need are the people to sign up uh, to help cover the costs for, for all the stuff we need to do, getting server that'll work good and stuff. We're, we've started this um, fund anything campaign to raise a little bit of money to help cover the cost and to get people onto the mailing list. I've started a weekly newsletter, and there's a lot of benefits to having a track membership. And if you go to uh, ufo-track.com, you, you can read all about it and find out what which perk you might want to join up for. The track membership is the one we really hope people will sign up for a lot. The project there is, is described in great detail about how the the phones work, reporting back to the central database, getting displayed out on the web page um, for historical purposes, and then um, calculating the distance between the sighting and wherever that person is, uh, the track member is, and um, getting the uh, real-time UFO alerts. Mm -hmm. And I want to go over, because there's a lot to it. I mean, there's a, there, you're kind of also trying to create a community, which makes sense. It's kind of like the SETI at home, where lots of people got involved with that. Um, to use their computers to crunch numbers here, using their phones to actually detect um, and and follow. But uh, when you talk about track members, and uh, the price is cool, so for $25 um, at the Fund Anything, people be can become a lifetime track member. And mm -hmm. what all does a track member get? Well, in addition to the text messages, if anybody in the area has a, an event go off with their smartphone, so, like, in the Phoenix area, uh, you would get a text message sent to your smartphone or an email if you prefer. And you can even set it up so that um, I want to perhaps get messages sent to me if events are happening in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I have relatives still, mm -hmm. or in Alaska, where my brother lives. I could get on the phone and give them a call and say, hey, why don't you go outside? Even if they're not a track member, I can at least give them a call. So I can monitor kind of several places around the country as a track member including where I live, of course, so that I can run outside with the camera if something starts to happen. Cool. And a uh, track member also, we've got a, a list of other benefits. Um, well, they'll have access to the historical data for somebody wanting to uh, do some serious investigation into a particular sighting. Um, the historical data will be open to anybody that's a member, so, um, and, you know, you can delve a little deeper into the original uh, sightings, get the get the basic numbers, where the original blips came in on the radar, what the trajectory was, and, you know, start to figure out cool. um, some other things like that. So maybe we could even get some more data uh, from, say, um, security cameras or other things because you know uh. what time to look and where to look and things like that. So maybe we can even um, enhance the evidence from a real-time UFO sighting. I mean, we're just 
hoping that people will get involved and, and use this raw data in creative ways such that we that can get us, some solid evidence. Yeah, it helps us all. Right. And so real time, and I'm assuming it's the app that triggers this text or email um, to the local people. Is that true? Sort of. It's a, it's a, think of the, uh, there's a $50 UFO detector you can buy on Amazon. And all it does is when the Earth's magnetic field shifts, it will just sound an alarm, period. That's it. And this app really does that. But the, uh, and so the person that has the app, they will just get their they own little alert. They have the equivalent alarm. of that. Yeah, that's what they have. But the uh, okay. real big benefit is that that app will also report into the central computer, and that computer will then handle getting the messages out to other people. So you'll probably get a message yourself as an app user. But, but it doesn't go into um, an alert that goes out to the members until we have two events in um, – a geographical area. Oh, cool. That, you know, if somebody's trying to spoof us by bringing a magnet into their cell phone or something like that, um, they'll, you will see the blip. But until we have a second one that uh, is in that same area, um, then we'll go on high alert. Oh, okay. interesting. Go to the website and take a look at the Google map and see the little UFO icons wherever events have been happening the last few hours. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really cool. So two or more, but it is generated by the app, so it's not like um, – so people will get these things immediately as an event is happening, like you're saying. So when they get a text or an email and they're in the area, they can go outside and hopefully um, catch a glimpse or pictures or videos of an object. Exactly, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. Multiple witnesses, hard uh, photographic data, um, multiple vantage points. That's just what we're hoping for. So, and it looks like track members are also going to get a weekly newsletter. Right. I've started that. I'm, uh, for the last eight weeks now, I've been sending out a newsletter, um, and that will be a part of the track membership, especially the lifetime track membership. Uh, that will continue to happen. Um, just got a little bit of uh, UFO sightings, a little bit of science, a little bit of… Uh, investigator tips. Investigator tips, fireballs, and the, uh, just different subject areas, but it's a quick newsletter you get. Cool. That you can skim through. He's even debunked uh, the one sighting <coughs> that was the solar energy field. Oh, really? And, yeah, recently there was a uh, picture that came up from somebody in a commercial airliner that in California, over California, they saw three glowing blobs of light way off on, near the ground towards the mountains in the distance. And I used to work on solar energy sites just like that one, tra- tracking the sun. What it is is a huge field of mirrors, heliostats as they're called, that are reflecting sunlight towards a central tower. And when you're off into the distance, you get a very intense uh, blob of light from the far side of that field of of heliostats. And there's three of them right in a row. There is a a field right now that's just coming online in California. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I don't, I don't either, but it's uh, it's three right there, and you look on the map, and you can tell that's that's got to be it. So, mm-hmm. cool, very cool. So, um, the other thing track members get is uh, some special member only content, and you'll have real time chat on the site where people can communicate about um, the sightings or what's going on. Also, huh? Yeah, we want to have conversation going back and forth, just so that people don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. And okay. share, share information uh, that way, and uh, both kind of a chat room and a forum kind of a process. We're, we're working on both of those details right now. 
Cool. And if people go to the crowdsourcing site, find anything, you can just uh, put in the search UFO and UFO track comes up too. Yes. So, and another thing, so that's what membership is. For $25, lifetime membership, they get all of this. So that sounds like a really good deal. And then um, you're also, for $40, they get the lifetime and they get uh, a book. So what is uh, the book that you're writing uh, about? Um, that's a fun book. I've actually got two books to work, but that's the first one that will be out in, in one or two months probably, let's just say. <coughs> Excuse me. How to uh, investigate UFOs just using your cell phone. Right. It, it won't really be just about using a cell phone, but there's, it is amazing what you can do with a cell phone nowadays. You can um, check elevation angle easily. Uh, you can... Longitude and latitude. latitude you have a Google Maps so you can get your GPS coordinates. You can... Um, Take photographs. Photographs, videos, jot notes. Uh, there is a, a just a ton of things you can do. It's amazing what you can do. I wouldn't... I'm going to stress in the book that you don't count on your phone. It's it's a really good way to do it, but always have a backup. You know, like uh, write things on paper too. So just uh, as a safety thing. Mm-hmm. But that that the electronics inside a cell phone now are so sophisticated that they are. It's truly an investigation tool. So it's mm-hmm. really- you can go to Wolfram Alpha for as just one example. You can find out exactly what. Uh, where the sun was at at a certain day and time, or which direction the Earth's magnetic field is at a given location on the Earth on any given date. They have that in there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's amazing what you can get. Well, it's helpful because you did this in the 90s. I came, same group actually, uh, the, the Colorado MUFON, but it sounds like I started just after you had left. But um, And back then, you know, we didn't have all of this. Luckily, we had the Internet, but... Um, Right now, like you said, I mean, you can lift up your phone and point out the stars with the right app and Google Stars or something like that and see um, what's around. You can look up the satellites. You can look up so much information, so I'm sure um, there's a lot more I don't even know about that's uh, in your book that people can find out about. Right. There's, like, level applications in your phone so that you can tell, you can point it at a certain direction to get elevation angles. Oh, um, cool. And, you know, just a lot of cute little apps that are out there now that just really help in the investigation. You can track down if a sighting was an iridium flare, which is a whole subject in itself. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's it's there's a lot of uses for it. And, and in the process of learning about these different ways to use the phone, <clears throat> I hope people will will learn how to think critically about being doing the investigations correctly. Right, cool. So that's what's cool about your project. It's kind of like... To me, it almost sounds like this this online community that's being created around tracking and investigating UFOs that has this technology um, associated with it with these apps that can help track all of this stuff because an important component will be going online, talking about what they're seeing and this notification that happens person to person, but even more importantly, software and hardware to two people. Um, so it's kind of taking UFO investigation at, at a next level, which is pretty exciting. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's our goal, and, and that's a good way to put it. I appreciate that. Now, are there things, are there other um, things out there that can affect the, that could give a false alert, um, like solar flares or something that you mentioned? Uh, it's possible. There, if you, um, if you, well, first of all, there is good evidence that UFOs do affect compasses. Um, mm-hmm. In the uh, Project Blue Book, for instance, we were talking about 
<clears throat> excuse me, there were like 700 cases that couldn't be identified at the end of the project out of 1,200 something. And when you look through those, you can find several that involved multiple military witnesses on airplanes watching their compasses go haywire while there's a UFO a few hundred yards away. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly how they could possibly affect the compass is a big open debate, but they do. Whenever there's a compass around, generally, they spin or, or go haywire. And there, there's quite a few cases like that. So um, as far as the smartphones being able to detect the Earth's magnetic field, um, those chips are pretty good. If you're walking past a refrigerator or something like that, it might throw it off. But, but that's why we want the multiple uh, signs to go out. Right. Um, one, one thing that people have asked us if this will... Uh, record and we don't know yet till we get some hard data is how earthquakes might be uh, affecting the magnetic field and um, we've heard a lot of people report that something strange happened a couple hours before an earthquake and and they have been told the magnetic field shifted just before that so um, that'll be interesting if that happens to be a coincidental discovery yeah there might be a correlation there well, that's another kind of exciting side effect that may happen is you may f- discover um, many different things. I mean, I can see other scientific applications other mm-hmm. than just uh, searching for UFOs. Yeah, isn't right. that fun? That yeah. would be so cool. And it will be interesting to filter out if and when we do have any solar flare activity that does affect it. Well, you know, that can go out on the, on the web page to explain it right away, of course. Right. And when and when this gets a little bit bigger and we've got more resources to work with and especially if the fund anything really takes off and we get a lot of members and so we have some resources, one of the things we're um, wanting to do is create some standalone uh, monitoring stations that might be coupled with possibly an all sky camera or something like that that turns on when when it gets um, a ding, and uh, so this can just grow and grow and grow and start getting more and more sophisticated as as time goes on. So this is going to be really fun to watch grow up, if you will. There are some all-sky cameras located on schools and some businesses, and I think there should be more of those. But if we could also throw in this UFO detector that uh, that checks for the magnetic field of the Earth, then we could get some very interesting data, possibly some, uh, some optical camera recordings of things moving across the sky at the same time that the Earth's magnetic field shifted, that kind of thing. And uh, it, they, they're using those right now for fireballs, mm-hmm. which are interesting too, but um, I see an application throwing in the Earth's magnetic field detector to get even more data. Yeah. Well, I hope, and I don't know if you've approached MUFON, but it, it, uh, it'd be great if they sponsored this and uh, put some ads in their journal for you without charge because, I mean, this is something I think that definitely going to help their investigators and I think any investigator is going to want to utilize uh, this tool and the, these um, the, what you're creating here in order to uh, become better investigators and get much more data and uh, the possibility for more exciting uh, events. That, that sounds good. I'll, I'll do some uh, checking with people. I know that would be a good good thing to do. We need to get the word out as much as we can. That is our yeah. goal right now. Yep. All right. So I definitely encourage anybody who's listening uh, to go check this out. And uh, I mean, $25 is very reasonable. Um, The most you're asking for, because, you know, there's a lot of people who come up with these crowdsourcing and sometimes they have um, 
perks that go up to hundreds or thousands of dollars, but the most uh, you're asking is $60 for a full package with a book and a t-shirt and everything, and uh, it goes down as low as $3, but uh, that $25 membership uh, fee for a lifetime membership is very reasonable and uh, well, well worth it, I think, for any uh, UFO investigator out there. The one one point I'd like to make, Alejandro, is we're going to build this. Uh, whether the fund anything is successful or not, we're going to build this, and this is going to be a long-term project for us. We would like fund anything to be successful so that we can do it a little bit more comfortably. But we are actually going to build this no matter what. But the 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 memberships after the fund anything goes away will be annual, and so this is a way to you know take a little bit of risk uh, and. Lock in, lock in your membership. Lock in your lifetime membership. So that's why we're doing the fund anything the way it is. This will get built uh, no matter how that project goes, um, but it'll be a lot more fun if, if there's more resources so that we can build more things and get the word out there uh, quicker and get the app, out, app users out there uh, giving us the data just as quick as we can. It's going to be so much fun. Right. Awesome. Well, very exciting, guys. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and telling me about it. Um, definitely uh, count me on board. I was excited when, uh, John, you sent me the email about this project uh, to begin with. Uh, we wrote something up on it. And uh, I guess we should clear that up, too, just so people aren't confused. There was an Indiegogo uh crowdsourcing project that you had started first, but there were some problems with that site, and so you moved over now to fund anything, so people should come over here to fund anything. Yeah, Indiegogo uh, for some reason just stopped uh, getting funds. People would call us and say, we're trying to contribute, but it's not letting us, and we tracked a few of those down, and... and, um, Indiegogo is still trying to figure out the problem. They do admit they had some sort of serious bug, but it's Something we said, well, let's just, we've got to move on, so we decided to go with London. We didn't want to wait it out. We didn't want to wait out their technical um, issues, so we decided to kind of reboot the campaign over there. So, cool. Uh, that's uh, why that. So it was, it was really bizarre. All right. Well, great. And yeah, we'll have to get an update from you later on. And uh, I'm really excited about your project, and, and good luck to both of you. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Okay, thank you so much to uh, John and to EJ. That was really interesting. Remember, you can go to ufo.track.com to check out his uh, what they're up to. And $25 for a lifetime membership and to help donate to this cause, I think, is practically nothing and well worth it. So I think it's, it's something that's really cool and, you know, could be fruitful. So I certainly encourage people to go check it out. I mean... For goodness sake, they have a, a uh, one of their contribution levels is $3, so uh, you could go do that. But yep, ufo.track.com. At the very least, go read about what they're doing because there's more detail there and uh, some more information in the video and stuff, and you can check that out. Um, so it's worth just looking at the site, so ufo-track.com. All right, I also want to thank Mr. McClelland for talking UFOs earlier today. And don't forget, like he said, to go to our YouTube, uh, Open Minds TV YouTube site, and watch videos of uh, him and Maureen talking about some of the UFO um, sightings in the last couple of weeks. Speaking of Jason and Maureen, don't forget, if you're in the Las Vegas area, to go check out the National Atomic Testing Museum on Friday night. 
this Friday night. Uh, the three of us will be there talking about UFOs, aliens, and government cover-up. Ooh, that sounds good. And it is going to be good. So come check it out, and you can ask some questions and uh, hang out with us. And we love hanging out with everybody. And, of course, speaking of hanging out with us and everybody, the UFO Congress is just around the corner. It is within a month. We are scrambling. We're running around the office. Some people uh, are freaking out, just like they do every year. Just kidding. No, just we're really busy, and I uh, keep them busy with um, getting uh, the conference ready. And this year is looking to be a really awesome year yet again. It's always so much fun. And um, we've already got some people coming into town. Grant Cameron, who spoke and won an award last year, he's going to be there. I just spent the weekend, some week time with him. And, you know, everybody talks about how this is just the biggest and best event and it's the most fun. And it's in this beautiful venue in the desert. I don't think there's a better venue for a UFO conference. So, and we are announcing one of the speakers we've added is uh, Rob Simone. So he is one of the guest um, hosts on Coast to Coast AM. And he has his own radio show out of L.A. And it also airs out of London. So I know some of you are some of uh, are some UK uh, fans. So some of you may listen to the Rob Simone so, show in London. But uh, yeah, he's going to be great. He's going to be talking about some of the latest UFO sightings and things like that. Um, but really cool, a great speaker. So you can come check that out. And don't forget, you know, we've got science. We've got Timothy Good. We've got uh, NASA scientists. We have abductees. We have uh, Native American stories. We've got a Bigfoot, someone talking about Bigfoot and UFOs. And we have a great debate uh, between um, some people on the government UFOs, some people thinking the government doesn't know a whole lot, some people think the government knows it all. So we'll have people debating about that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Go to ufocongress.com and uh, register for that. and, uh, And hopefully we'll see you there. Uh, all of this that I've talked about can be found at openminds.tv, so check out openminds.tv for more information. And then I want to thank, finally, the people who do our opening and close music. Thank you so much to Caleb Hanks uh, for the open music and to Earth Minutes for the close. Um, it's great music, and it's so awesome that they donated it to us, and uh, I love listening to it. Each and every week, I hope you do too. And I love speaking to you all. Thank you all so much for joining us again. And we will talk to you next week, people. Adios, muchachos.